Will you turn with me, please, to the passage which we read earlier in Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. I'd like to consider what we have from verse 19. From 19 down to verse 31, we have which is usually called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I particularly like to focus on the first part of it down to verse 26. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was buried and was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abram afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abram said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest good things, thy good things, likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. And thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither then can they pass to us that would come from thence. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord bless our thoughts upon it tonight. There are different ways in which a sermon might be entitled based on this parable, and it would be the die is cast at death, or a study in contrasts. This is one of the most striking of Jesus' parables. It's a parable, and yet it depicts reality to be faced. It involves a reality that we must all face the reality of death and what follows. You might think it would be morbid to think about death, but there is a reality in it because we must all face it. We must all face it. And in considering death and what follows, we are dependent upon God's revelation in Scripture. But as Peter puts it in his second letter, we do not follow cunningly devised fables. Perhaps it's a common thought on passages such as this, that, it's a, that it is a cunningly devised fable. But the apostles were eyewitnesses. The gospel writers like, Ruth were, like Luke were preserved by the Spirit from stating anything but the truth. Preserved from it. This is the truth. Because it is the word of God. It is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know according to the word it is appointed unto man once to die. And we know everybody will recognize that. Whatever the consequences they feel about it initially. We don't like so much what follows. After this 
the judgment. But this is what we have to face. All of us will have to face it. And everybody out there as well, be they ever so ignorant or indifferent to what is going on in here or what is found in the Bible. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, if it were the same for everybody, if it was the same for all, what happens at death, if it was the same for all, well, there would be little purpose in our preaching. No purpose in it, really. People might say, well, you might be able to live a good life, but what would that matter? But it's clearly not the same for all. There is a great division at death. And as the soul is before God at death, so they will be throughout the endless ages of eternity. What a thought. But how seriously do you take it? How seriously do people in general take it? Or will they just laugh it off? The division in the two ways are spelt out for us here in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We are one thing or the other. There is no third way. Our destination will relate to the possession or otherwise of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ confronts us with that here. Now, there are four things to bear in mind as we open this up. I'm going to deal with two things arising from this parable, but I'd just like to, you to bear in mind four things as we approach it. And the first is this. God is absolutely holy and just and does all things absolutely right. The second thing is that man is alienated from God by his or her sin and deserve condemnation for it. The third thing is the Bible teaches the reality of eternal punishment for the unsaved, but it teaches also glory for the saved soul. And it will be one thing or the other. The fourth thing is, all who remain unconverted in this life will be lost forever. All who remain unconverted, unsaved in this life, will be lost forever. Now, of course, this is the context of gospel, of gospel invitations in which sinners are invited and called to come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with the assurance that if they do so, they will be saved. Notice two things from this striking passage then. The first is this, the concerns of the here and now. The concerns of the here and now. Pictured for us here are two men. One is a rich man and the other is a poor beggar. Let's understand that this is not to be taken as teaching that the rich automatically go to hell and the poor automatically go to heaven. Rather, we take it this way. Even though a person does well in this life and has a high standing in society, that does not mean that all will be well with their soul 
or with their eternity. And even though a person is poverty-stricken, this does not mean that they are hopeless cases in relation to their souls. The context, in a sense, of this parable is the Jewish understanding or thought that a rich person must be blessed by God and the poor person must be otherwise. What we have here are extreme cases in which the true position of the men in question is not what it seems to be. You have to get beneath the surface. What is going on in their lives? What is going on in their hearts and souls? Preaching, in a sense, is to get under the surface as well, under the surface of your skin, your heart and soul. What is there? Look at, look, look at it. Search and examine yourself about it. What is going on in their lives? What is going on in your life? Especially in relation to God, in relation to the place given by you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the rich man, let's think of the rich man, the concerns of the here and now, the rich man. Here he is, a, here is an affluent man, a man who has plenty, as is clear from verse 19. No problems. He's getting through life swimmingly well. He's plenty. Now, there's no vice in this at this point. It's not wrong to be well off. It's not wrong to have aspirations. But what more did he have? And this is the acid test. What more did he have besides in relation to God? That was the question. But then there's the poor man. He is called Lazarus. The rich man is sometimes called Dives, but that just means, well, that he was a rich man. But this man is named. The, the poor man is named. He's Lazarus. He's a beggar and full of sores, we read in verse 20. If the rich man, if Dives, noticed the beggar at his gate, he didn't pay him much heed. The sad thing is the dogs paid him more heed. And they had the kindness of licking his sores. They paid him more attention. This man, this poor man, we, be, we, we read, didn't even have the benefit of having the crumbs that fell from the master's table. Now, it is not a virtue to be rich, and it's not a virtue either to be a poor or a beggar. But what more did he have besides in relation to God? There is an element of uh, social conscience in this story. Um, but uh, though there is that element, it's a mistake to interpret this simply in terms of the sensitivity of social status, of the rich man towards the poor man, as if what the rich man needed was a conscience about Lazarus. That was true, perhaps. But the vital thing is, that he wasn't the sort of man to pay any attention to the word of God, the rich man. He was not a man of faith, like the father of the faithful Abraham. Lazarus clearly is to be taken 
as a man of faith. His name means, Lazarus means Jehovah helps. And that indicates this. But really, it's the fact of him waking, waking up on the other side in Abram's bosom that is decisive in our understanding of Lazarus's position in this world. He believed. He was a man of faith. He trusted in the Lord. What was the rich man trusting in? Like so many in our society in our day, he was trusting mammon. He was relying on respectability. He didn't need God. Oh, no, he didn't need God. How many people do you, need, do you meet nowadays? And they just don't need, oh, I don't need that. I don't need that gospel that you're speaking of. I've got plenty. This is, this is, this is timelessly relevant, what we have here in this parable, isn't it? He didn't need God. He wasn't bothered about worship or the church. Family worship? No. Grace at meals? No. Prayer meetings and Sabbath services? Occasionally. Routine, perhaps, at best. If he went to worship, it held nothing for his affections. If he went, it was a matter of customer routine. It would be going through the motions. Or oh, we can go through the motions in attendances at the means of grace. Just go through the motions. Turn up, sit down, switch off, and leave. That's possible. Perhaps that's the experience of some here. Beware of going through the motions. The picture has to do with what we all face, the fact of death, physical death, the passing of our souls from this physical body. You can picture the passing of the rich man. We're told of his burial. You can imagine it, can't you? The pomp, the eulogies that were given, about how he did so much for the community and was so benevolent. A great, as people glibly say nowadays, a great send-off for the rich man. By contrast, nothing is said of Lazarus's mortal remains. Nothing. No one would take any notice. Two men, very different lives, representative of how things are in this world. But that's just the outward. The study in contrast of the here and now, the concerns for the here and now. How they stood before others, how we stand before others is one thing. How we stand before God is another and far more important thing. The most important thing is the sense in which there's nothing more important tonight and what is going on in here. What about how they stood in relation to God and eternity? How about how you stand 
in relation to God and eternity. However young you may be, however old you may be, you don't know what the day is going to bring forth. This all unravels at the crucial point of death. For secondly, we turn to this observation. The concerns of the here and now, the concerns of the then and there. Verses 22 to 26. There are two men in this story. They represent two types of people there are in the world. You're either one thing or the other. I don't mean in terms of social status. I mean that you're one thing or the other. You're either right with God, saved, or you're a stranger to him, unsaved. The implications of this becomes clear for the rich man and Lazarus when their soul leaves their body behind and they go to their own place. However much a person has in this life, or however little, whether they are royalty or pe peasantry, whether they are religious or atheist, they will face this certainty. Their souls will be required of them. Your soul will be required of you. By God, and you will appear one day, in the blink of an eye, before the judgment seat of Christ. They will stand at that judgment seat. They will have to give an account of themselves to God. You will have to give an account of yourselves to God. The teaching of Luke 16 makes it clear for one thing, that it is not the same for all. Not all will go to a good place. And it will depend upon this, whether in this life, you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior, or whether you have not. That's a crux. Now, this is not, as I concede, it isn't, a, it isn't a comfortable subject. But the truth is what God reveals and Jesus teaches and not what we might think is allowable or disallowable, comfortable or uncomfortable. So what happens to these two, these representative men? First of all, consider the rich man. Consider the rich man. He opens his eyes. Where? Where does he open his eyes? At death. In hell. How does he feel there? He feels torment. Can you imagine that? Torment. The torments are made no easier for him by the picture of the beggar safe with Abram across there on the other side. He's obviously taken aback. This is not what he expected. This is not what he thought. Thus it will be with so many who finally refuse the gracious offers of salvation through faith in Jesus. 
They thought there was nothing to fear. They thought perhaps that hell was a hoax. That it was a ploy of Christians to scare people. To scare people into believing. They thought that science pr proved, they, that science proved that there was no heaven and no hell. They believed the atheists. But not just the atheists, also respectable church-going people too, who never came to faith. They just relied on their good works and doing others no harm, or for some inexplicable reason, never gave any thought to where they're going to spend eternity. No doubt they're a mixture of all sorts of feelings and motives. Did you notice that the rich man was aware of Abraham? This is a this is a striking point in a sense. He's aware of Abraham. Father Abraham, he says in verse 24. What's this about? It tells us that this man at least wasn't ignorant about religion. Who was Abraham? Abraham was the father of the faithful. No doubt this is why Abraham is pictured in this parable of Jesus, representing the heavenly state, the father of the faithful. So he wasn't ignorant about religion, this rich, this rich man, but he was a stranger to a living faith in the living God and the living Savior. He opened his eyes in hell. Imagine it. Imagine opening your eyes in hell. And the thirst, the thirst. Send Lazarus with water to cool my tongue, he says. And the realization, there is a great gulf between me and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. A gulf, he is told in verse 26, that is fixed. Fixed. Imagine seeing a gulf fixed. You can't get across. You can't get across. There's no going from hell to heaven after death. The die is cast at death. My dear friends, you must in this life seek heaven. In this life seek heaven. The rich man had placed all his reliance in this life. And this is where all his good things were. No treasure in heaven. No faith in a savior. No reliance upon the word of God. And now, lost. Lost. And that forever and without remedy. This is Jesus' teaching. It isn't just a theory of this church or any other church. It is the reality of what God has revealed of what Jesus has taught. No doubt the rich man employed himself usefully in this life. But he missed the things of most of, of greatest importance. How many of how many will this be true? Missing the things of greatest importance. Like the rich fool and the 
parable of Jesus in chapter 12 of Luke's gospel here. This night thy soul will be required of thee, and then whose will these things be which you have gained? So in thinking about the, considering the rich man in, in the then and there, here's a question tonight. How would things stand in your case were you to fall asleep tonight and open your eyes beyond before the morning dawned? What an issue. But it's a serious question. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. Now consider Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. Oh no. Whatever was true in this life, he is not poor now. As we've said, it's not that the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell. It's just that there is another measure of riches under the surface, which is more important than the outward, which can beguile us and which clearly beguiled the rich man. Lazarus is the believer. And see how his death is described beautifully, carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. There isn't a reference to his burial or what happened to his mortal remains. But he was carried, his soul was carried by the angels. We cannot but think of Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Comfort, not torment. It is the death of the blessed. Their bodies remain in the ground till the resurrection, but they are at death. But as they are at death, so they will be at the resurrection and judgment day. There is a blessed hope for the Christian for life beyond physical death. It's beautifully summed up in some verses of the letter of Paul to Titus. In chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It's revealed to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, the believer says, with conviction, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and are rebuked with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Happy soul, Lazarus. Jehovah helps. Happy soul. He experienced a saving change in this life. He came to trust in a savior despite adversity. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. This is, the, this, is, this is the picture that he presents to us. He had heavenly treasures. The most important treasures of what? What are they? Of love to Christ, of repentance for sin, of a lowly and a humble spirit, a life lived in obedience to the word of God, to the Bible, a life of prayer. Now, 
if you are a stranger to these things, how will you expect to wake up on the other side safe in the arms of Jesus and not with the rich man in his torment? But happy are you if at your death you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have this hope, this blessed hope, carried into the bosom of Christ himself in heaven, in paradise. Otherwise, you see, that place to which the unconverted go is described by the Lord in one place as their, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For the Christian believer, the converted man or woman, the voice is heard, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. My dear friends, I know many of you here, but I don't know many of you either. There's others I don't know well at all. You, but I would say this to you. You are one thing or the other. You are one or the other. You are in the position of the rich man tonight, or you are in the position of Lazarus. There is no third position. But this is the arena for the gospel. For we are in a day of grace still. And you who are bereft of saving faith in Jesus, you are invited, invited and pled with to come from the broad road that leads to destruction upon which you are walking to the narrow road that leads to life. Christ and Christ alone is the way and the truth and the life. Christ and Christ alone is the remedy for we poor wretched sinners who without his grace, without his saving grace, will perish utterly beyond. Christ is offered to the sinner in the full sufficiency of his person and work, something that was remembered in the Lord's Supper this morning. In all his sufficiency. The rich man here, he asks Abram, he says, well, he tells Abram more or less, to send Lazarus to earth to warn his five brothers. Obviously, his five brothers are in the same plight as him without any interest in eternal things. But no, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, Something unusual and miraculous like rising from the dead will not make the difference. But God has revealed himself. Where? In his words. In his word, you have the word. It is accessible to you. The word of God is accessible to you. The preaching of the word of God is accessible to you. God has revealed himself. You have the Bible in your hand. Or it is readily available. And therefore, for whoever this is true, you are inexcusable. Inexcusable. If at the last, you are in the position of the rich man of this parable. 
languishing in a lost, tormented eternity. You have access to the word and you are to believe the word, to receive the word, one set forth in the word as the only name given under heaven among men by which they must be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that word must, must be saved. Of course, because all are dead and trespasses and sins as they are in this world, apart from him and his grace and coming to faith in him. What a solemn passage this is. We are confronted with the issues of life and death very solemnly and very positively. J.C. Ryle said in one place, the change that will come over the minds of unconverted men or women after death is one of the most fearful points in their future condition. They will see and know and understand a hundred things which they were obstinately blind to while they were alive. Without Christ, my dear friends, a person is heading for ruin, eternal ruin. Don't let it happen to you. Come while it is day. Come while there is opportunity. Come while the preaching of the gospel is heard, that you would have him as your saviour, friend, and remedy. Let us remember, as we mentioned at the beginning, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of ourselves. Let no one be under any misapprehension of what Jesus teaches here. It is not a theory of this church. It is a teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be remiss in not preaching this faithfully and honestly so that men and women and young people and children might recognize the issues and might come to faith immediately and urgently in the Lord Jesus Christ and put their lives in his hand, put their lives in his hand, live lives of principled obedience. The searching and challenging thought that a cry for mercy can be too late. We read it in verse 24. He cried, the rich man, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This is not a thought to us. There can be a cry for mercy that's too late. Too late. Because now is the accepted time. This life is the day of is, is, is a day of salvation. Now is the time to come to Christ. And may you do so with haste and with urgency, if so be that you have never come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from your sin. May the Lord bless these thoughts upon his word. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, how good and gracious thou art, and we pray that thou wouldst bless this word to our hearts. It is very solemn, it is very serious, and yet it is very, it is very telling because it deals with reality. 
We pray, Lord, that thou wouldst help us to realize the wonder of there is, that there is in the salvation that Christ offers, that is offered in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst help us not to deny thy word or despise thy word, but to receive and embrace it. And the one who is the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, cause us to come to him, to love him, to put our trust in him, to walk with him, to live for him, whatever the cost there may be for us. So hear us, Lord, we pray. Forgive us all our sin and give us thy blessing tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.